Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello and welcome to The Tonight Show. The continuing spiralling cost of the National Children's Hospital. The government is pressed on the controversy in the Dáil. It is of a scale, such a scale, that it will uh, eat up a third of the budget, or perhaps more, and puts a question mark over other much-needed infrastructure. I, I don't have a figure, and government, nobody has a figure, because there has been no resolution to a lot of those. Up in smoke, the sale of vapes and e-cigarettes to under-18s is to be banned. Two doctors debate the vaping issue. In many ways, I see vaping as the revenge of the tobacco industry in terms of getting people hooked on nicotine again. Um, and so therefore, this legislation is important in making sure that future generations of young people don't get attracted to vaping. Early summer heatwave hits Ireland for the June bank holiday weekend. But in the age of the climate emergency, is that something to be celebrated? and 2022 census data shows our population keeps growing, but we're getting older, fewer of us identify as Catholic, and home ownership is falling. You can join our conversation online with your comments and your questions on the hashtag TonightVMTV. has assured that all that other projects won't be cancelled or delayed because of the rising costs of the new National Children's Hospital. The HSE has warned that spending on the project and uncertainty over the final bill will have an impact on other parts of its capital programme for the year. And the government was pressed to answer questions on the controversy in the Dáil today. It is of a scale, such a scale, that it will uh, eat up a third of the budget or perhaps more, and puts a question mark over other much-needed infrastructure. It seems that the uh, Minister for Health has a figure. Uh, he will not share that figure. We've all known for, for some time uh, that the cost was going to go above the $1.4 uh, which was the formal cost signed off by government. There is an intensive negotiation going on between the contractor and the development board. The sums of money involved are very large. I don't have a figure, and government, nobody has a figure, because there has been no resolution to a lot of those. I'm joined by Government Chief Whip, Junior Health Minister and Fine Gael TD, Hildegard Nocton, Sinn Féin Deputy and Chair of the Public Accounts Committee, Brian Stanley, and Ireland Editor at Independent.ie, Fionnán Sheehan. Um, you're all very welcome along to the programme tonight. Um, Hildegard Nocton, I'm very struck um, by what... Um, well, we had Stephen Donnelly there talking about uh, not knowing the final bill. We will get to that. But the Taoiseach saying there was an assurance that the project will not be deleted, will not, um, other projects, aside from the Children's Hospital, will not be delayed, will not be cancelled as a result of the cost of the Children's Hospital. So where did this concern come from within the HSE that it would have an impact 
on their spending and on other capital projects. I was with uh, Minister Stephen Donnelly today and he was very clear that um, any suggestion that there would be any negative impacts on other capital health projects across the country is just simply not true. This week he announced the health capital plan of €1 billion Euro for the rollout of really critical pieces of infrastructure, uh, extra beds right across the country, including in my own constituency of Galway West where we are going to have a new surgical hub next year which will alleviate the elective waiting lists at Mer Merlin Park and this is just one of many, one in Cork, Dublin as well. So yep. there's absolutely no question of any of these uh, projects being delayed or negatively impacted. So did the HSE get its facts wrong? I think the HSE uh, what I suppose want to ensure as well that you know the fact that their the development, um, the hospital development uh, group are in negotiations with that contractor um, that they want to roll out their projects. But I think these are political decisions as well from government's point of view, from the Minister for Health's point of view, and he's been very clear. And I can tell you as someone who sits at Cabinet, the importance of the rollout of these capital projects right across the country, from hospital to community care, step-down facilities, primary care centres yeah. are really important. So it would appear a little bit of a rift there, certainly a contradiction in what the HSE is saying and the government is saying about these big capital projects. Um, Brian Stanley, what do you take on it? Like, who do you think is, is, is telling the truth here? Um, if we get to the bottom of it, if the HSE is saying we have these various projects that are going to be under pressure, that do face being cancelled, and we have uh, the Taoiseach offering assurances um, in the Dáil today. Well, what we have is two completely contradictory uh, positions. The HSE are very clear in their statement. Uh, they said that there will be fluctuations uh, that other projects will, that will impact. And the government, you know, maybe, maybe come with the line that they come with in terms of that what's included in the capital programme and approved yesterday will go ahead. But there's a bigger list. There's a bigger list of projects there that never met it on, onto that list. And Hildegard will know of them in her own constituency. Uh, I know of them in Leash and Offaly. And Offaly, for example, is getting the, pr the princely sum of 1.4 million out of this over a billion euros. So out of over a thousand million euros, Offaly is getting 1.4 million. That's what Offaly is getting out of it. Uh, a county where so there's an expanding population. The, the overrunning costs so, of the children's hospital are directly impacting other projects. Well, well, of course, well, of course it is because the cake. You know, if you have the, the cake is only so big, it's slightly over a billion, and if the children's hospital takes a bigger chunk of that, that means that the other slices of that cake are smaller, or there's a whole lot of projects that won't be in the cake, that won't be in the mix, and that's what's happened here. This has been eaten up money and on the Public Accounts Committee we've been trying to follow this for the last three years and we've intensely scrutinised this. The only person that has been able to say to me that he knows the actual cost of it is Robert Watt, the Secretary General. But he's not going to share it with anybody. He's not going to share it with the Public Accounts Committee. I don't know if Stephen Donnelly knows or if the So what do you think knows. about what Stephen Donnelly had to say? You know, he was, he, you know, in, in fairness to him, he was being honest and saying, I don't know that and we don't know until the outcome of various um, other outstanding issues around it, uh, legalities and otherwise, that we won't are, know the final There are two variables point. here that, that no one actually knows until the, until the final bill comes in. But what they can do, and I'll tell you what the two variables are, the first one is construction inflation. I understand and everybody understands that there's construction inflation. Mm. But the longer the delays on this and the longer it goes on, the, you know, the, the higher, obviously, that, that, will, that price will go. The other thing that's having a huge impact is the actual amount of claims. And in the last count, there was... 1,875 1, claims lodged. There's 1,541 of them have been, quote, substantiated. 
And those claims, mainly by the contractor against the development board and against the, against the government and the public exchequer, those claims will, will cost a lot of money. One estimate is there's, a, a, there's what's in dispute is 506 million. That's the last figure I got on it. So that is, that's going to have a huge impact. So the cost that's of why this, we don't. That's why we don't know the final cost now. No, but, but, what the, but what the government can what the government can give is the figure. They can give a figure. They could give a figure for what the final cost should be because it's it, it's it's eighty percent way there. Okay. But can I but, just, but can I just no no really just quickly. this this is the important bit there. Briefly, the important right. bit here is that uh, they should be able to give a final figure. You know, and allow for the fact and say, but there will be variables on top of that, so including, it could be an extra including inflation. Million. Can I just come in really quickly, just, just, just quickly on that, on that, there, there on that Hildegard, yeah. and providing, there, I suppose, a certainty at this point in this. the project, yeah. which has jumped from 650 million in 2018 okay. to 1.4 billion. And, you know, speculation is that it will land closer to 2 billion or go beyond that figure. Can I just say, so what Minister Donnelly said today was that it was 1.4 billion euro and that and the cost would likely increase. There are negotiations underway between the contractor and the and the development board of the hospital. And it would be highly inappropriate for me as a minister, for Minister Donnelly, for anybody to prejudice those negotiations. What we can assure people, I think this is what the listeners want to know, is that the taxpayer will get value for money. The development board has the development board is carrying out when we had the development... 650 million being post planning the estimated cost in 2018 that is now bubbled up and and more than tripled really in cost to over 2 billion how is that value for money for the taxpayer what I'm saying is that what we have said and what the minister has been very clear on, it's 1.4 billion. That will likely exceed that. There are inflationary costs, as Brian has alluded to. There are supply chain issues through the pandemic, through all of these issues. But it's really important to say that there are reviews and evaluations carried out constantly by the development board in relation to this contractor to ensure that we get value for money. If if a final figure was given, what effect would that have in relation okay. to the negotiations? So there is a negotiation happening okay. here that needs to... Um, that needs to uh, take place. Oh, and right. for okay. any minister to come in and to give a figure would only prejudice that. Jeanon, um, that would prejudice negotiations and it would not do us any favours to provide the public with a final estimated figure on the cost of this project. Yeah, I mean, this is like uh, Dermot Bannon on Run to Improve on Speed, really. Like, I mean, you see where people start out at the start and they say this extension is going to cost 100, 100 grand and then come back six months later and it's up to 125. I mean, this has grown exponentially over time. And even from the early phases, you can go back to pre-COVID, you can go back to 2018, where we saw that the even a year into the project, uh, shovels going into the ground, you were seeing that it was hitting 1.3 billion up, up from a billion. You can go back pretty much about 17 years ago, the price was at 300 million. That's when it was going into the Matter Hospital site, which was ultimately abandoned. And we went back to, to square one again. What I can't understand here is, where is the Department of Public Expenditure? This is the point of the Department of Public Expenditure. The reason it was set up in the first place uh, 12 years ago was because we were told the excesses of the Celtic Tiger, where projects went over budget all the time and the motorway budget, some of those motorway projects went five times over the initial uh, estimate and so on. We saw projects like the Lewis go way over and, and, what and all that. What is the Department of Public Expenditure saying? I don't know. There is a public spending code in place. That and that well, is what is being. It, how, how do What's, you know? How do you know it's not been adhered to? Like, how, how has me, it been adhered to? Tell me how you know we, it's we not been adhered to. We have gone from because we have gone from a figure at six fifty 
two or three times that. At the moment, in relation to those negotiations happening between right. the development board and okay, but the, if, if you and have a starting price, there is a there is a, I have a starting price here, and I have a finishing price here, and it's three times as much. Okay. So what I'm asking is, where is the department? that was established in order to manage projects I like can, this. It, 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 I can assure you that the public helpful? spending okay. code is been adhered to. And this we've is heard about the public spending code. We have value for I money. want to bring Brian and, Stanley and back in. And just finally, this is, this is going to be a state-of-the-art, a, a modern facility for the children, for our children's most sickest children sure. in this nation. And, and, that's, and, and that is what we want uh, from the government. And to get this built as quickly as possible. And families have been looking for Absolutely. that hospital for a very goal. long time yes. and it's already uh, been much delayed. Brian Stanley, as chair of the PAC, I want to ask you about you know, what feedback you're getting, what information you're getting, because surely the Public Accounts we, Committee are sitting there scratching their heads we, saying, what's happening with this at this point? We have been hamstrung in our work because of the denial of information. We haven't been given information we need. And you know, I understand, as I said, that there will be variables and variations in terms of inflation and the settling of those claims, some of which will be settled in the High Court mm -hmm. and are before the High Court, and we can't interfere with that. I understand that. But the figure, the figure minus those, there should be a figure there for that. And just to be helpful as well... Do you think, do you think the government is fearful of giving out a figure when it's well, going to be below what the final well, figure well, can will be? Can I say this be? to you? That if we're almost 80% of the way into the project, imagine building a house, having, some, having a contractor building a house for you, and have the second fixing done, and they're starting to win the fitted kitchens and the wardrobes, and you still don't know what the finished price is. Imagine a situation like that. The facts are here is, is that there was a report carried out by Deeper and the Department of Health two years ago that no one has seen, and which we were denied access to. And that report was to do two things. One was, was to try and put a ballpark figure on the final cost, but also the timeline for completion, which we know now... Which will be complete which next we know year. Now and next has, year. And hasn't been contradicted. It'll be next that, year. That this, that this may run over into 2025, Yet another year. So of hang delay. on a second, and I just want to like we'll get to that. That report. You're, you're, that report you're saying next. You're saying 2024. Yeah. Done and dusted. Okay. That the we hospital, are hearing the hospital will be built next year. Like ribbon cutting. I mean, staff in place. Open the doors. Yeah, it will be open and completed next year. Have you? What, a month? what we want is there a here? month in mind? What we want? Uh, spring of next year is my understanding. But okay, next year, when what this is, and really just to get back to. Uh, and it's very easy to go back over time and go back over the, the history of the whole, I suppose, debacle. But what we want as a government is to make sure that this, finally, this project is delivered for um, our, so that we can deliver the best healthcare must, service fairness, for our most sickest regard, children must, in the nation. That must and frustrate that people. the taxpayer does get value for money. Yeah. And I appreciate people's concerns about this, but we cannot, and I cannot as a minister, no minister, nobody in government can prejudice the outcome of those negotiations that are currently happening at the and moment. And there's a whole lot of children being denied access to healthcare who need healthcare, who need surgery, Thousands of All them the because this, this hospital, hospital because All of the, the more reason to because have just a second I didn't inter interrupt you possible. because of the fact that the hospital has been delayed mm. and th this has dragged on and on and on. Brian, so we need we do need a hospital. Everyone knows that. Can I ask you, Brian, just about something? Um, you described the hospital as a vanity project. Given that this new children's hospital is so badly needed, what did you mean by that? What, what I mean is is that um, the project is you know it's an architect's showpiece. There's no doubt about that. Um, People in the construction industry tell me that you know it would be—it's a very hard building to uh, to construct, to service, to fit out. Uh, some people in the medical profession have commented, made com similar comments to me. I do think that you know that we went for a very complicated design. Uh, I'm not a 
I'm not a construction engineer, but certainly, uh, you know, I've heard that. The facts are, though, is the project's 80% complete. Okay. We need to get it over the line. You think it's too fancy? But, well, I is think, that what you're saying? I, th I, think that we could, I think that we could have been more practical uh, and we could have tried to get to the finishing line a bit quicker and a bit cheaper and to have a good, solid building in place that would serve this country for another 100 years um, and that those children that who are sick who should be getting treatment there 20 years ago and have are been waiting for it. it. Okay. Um, I want to talk about um, the census and the, the figures out today show that our population has grown by 8% since 2016 to over 5.1 million. We are ageing. The average age is 38.8. Uh, we're probably all above the average age in this studio tonight, are we? I'm not so sure. I won't, uh, I won't, I won't, I won't make a guess on that. But uh, look, I guess we probably are. But look, talking ahead to that and what we've been talking about, Fiona, about these, you know, uh, the need for these big projects, the need for new children's hospitals. Um, is the government keeping pace with our, our, our rapidly growing population. Well, you're, the census, in effect, doesn't just give you a snapshot. It gives you a picture of the challenges going, going forward because it's effectively outlining a number of, of, of things that you can describe as either opportunities or problems. Your, your population is aging, mm -hmm. so therefore uh, you're going to have greater draw on your, on your health services. You're going to need more migrant workers to be coming into the country in order to, to fill the vacancies uh, that that you're you're going to have. You're therefore going to have a greater draw on, on your on your education, your transport, uh, and and your housing. So when you're looking across the board, you are looking. I know Pascal Dunn, who is conducting a, a review of the the National Development Plan uh, at the moment, and his role has been expanded to 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 speed up some of those projects. But it does very much say yes. You have your your problems now but they're not going to end just because you deal with what you would regard as the health crisis or you, you catch up with your, with your the health projects, uh, such as the, the Children's Hospital, the National Maternity Hospital. There is going to be a constant draw for further projects to be delivered down the line, and that's why you're looking at that big pot of money that Michael McGrath has got uh, at the moment, 65 billion over the next three years, and saying that is, it's really important that that money is spent wisely. Yeah. But spent quickly as well, would you agree, Brian Stanley? I mean, it's not just a job, as Fiona was saying, for this government. It's more so a job for the next government. And if the polls are to be believed, it will be Sinn Féin, you know, leading the next government. So is there a strategy within Sinn Féin around what you do now um, to, to deal with this, you know, rapidly growing population and an ageing population, as we've talked about? From our point of view, we're always strategic. Uh, we do want to, uh, you know, we do want to see public money spent well. Uh, we do want to see good investment in health and housing, in education and transport and all the other areas. But, we, you know, we have to use that money wisely. We have seen some examples over the last five years where money was not spent well. Some projects have been good, but we've had some terrible overspends. I just uh, wonder with and, that, do people, do people um, care as much if the project is done that once you have, say, for example, with your children's hospital, when it's new, when it's open, when it's there, well, people, actually people do are care. just very grateful that it is people, there. People actually do care because when they look and see that they don't have the primary care centre that were promised 10 years ago, or when they don't have a new wing to a hospital, or you have a situation like you have in, in Cork and in Limerick hospitals that are very overcrowded, that needed to be addressed. There's huge pressures. Mm. But in answer to your question, regarding the growing population, we have to be very strategic in terms of how we use money. We have to try and get good value for money. And yes, we do need big public investment uh, in projects in health and in housing uh, and education to try and meet that. There's huge, you know, we have a significant increase in population and that's going to continue for the next few years. 
and we have to meet that, meet that challenge. Yeah, I was surprised to see that um, jump. I think it's actually quite stark, the, 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 the jump in, in, um, in the population that we've seen since 2016, Hildegard, jumping by 8%. And likely, obviously, for that projection and that trend to follow through. Um, is there a need now for a greater pace and pace over perfection when it comes to rolling out those key infrastructure projects and all the services that go hand in hand with a population. Like at the moment, we've got a shortage of frontline staff, you know, in all areas, in, in healthcare, in policing, with public transport issues as well, that there's an awful lot of catching up to do. Is that acknowledged within government? Yes, and I actually visited the Central Statistics Office in Cork there about two weeks ago, and I would agree with Fiona, it's not just about stats and figures, they give us real, they give government real insight into what we need to be doing, where people are living, where they're working, how they're travelling, so that we can feed into this to know that we're getting our transport services right, they're in the right place, remote working, uh, the rollout of the broadband plan, all of that, education, where we have our schools, our hospitals. So What's there is the big challenge for government? I suppose the big challenge is, and I, is one around, I suppose, in every single sector now, it's, I suppose, a shortage of, um, I suppose, workers in every sector. So, for example, in healthcare, because that was one of the issues, we have Minister for Higher Education, Simon Harris, and Minister Donnelly, uh, Minister for Health, uh, working together in relation to ensuring that we are now... Um, so this training up qualified nurses, doctors, midwives, dentists, social care workers. So there's a commitment there among our universities to produce 200 of these medical people over the next five years. Also, we've got our other... Um, and we know that, and we know that acute so recruitment suppose, crisis that we're seeing right yeah, now within so I, I suppose sectors like healthcare. That's one area that we need to... And, and we're looking at all of these people coming into the country, which we need. I just attended last week with a business and professional women's um, meeting with Ukrainian women, so it was women in Galway in business collaborating with Ukrainian women okay. who want to set up a business here. We need okay. these workers. We need them to come into every single sector. So this is part Brian. of our planning and embracing the changes in relation to people coming to this country so that they can contribute okay. and be yes. part of our future okay. in relation to uh, um, every And we are sector. seeing a growing um, diversity as well within the country, which probably reflects that as well. Brian, briefly on that, and would you see key to all of that is housing those people who are needed for those jobs? Housing, housing is one of the, obviously one of the big challenges, but also there's challenges in health. There's uh, challenges in terms of educational capacity. And the big, the big problem that we need to get over and we need to get to grips with is workforce planning, that we have a pipeline of people being trained, recruited and retained within the trades and within the education and within and within the health system. And who wish to stay. That's what we need to, to stay do. in the country. Okay. Um, my thanks to Brian and to Fionnon. Coming up next, two doctors with differing views on vaping. Please stay with us. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back. Hildegard Nocton is still with me. I'm also joined now by Professor Luke Clancy, Director General of the Tobacco Free Research Institute of Ireland and by Dr. Garrett McGovern, an addiction specialist with the new Nicotine Alliance Ireland group. Um, you're welcome along, both of you gentlemen. Um, I want to go first to this bill that's being introduced around the banning um, of the sale of, of e-cigarettes to under 18s. Um, why now? What's in it and why now? Because we are playing a bit of catch up on this, aren't we, Hildegard? Yeah, so today at Cabinet, we approved this uh, legislation. So I'll be introducing it into the Dáil next week. So really, the aim of this is about protecting children. Um, we know that the evidence says around vaping um, that it has a really negative effect on developing brains and has long-term impacts on, on young people. So that's why we're banning it for under 18. So banning the advertising of it in areas where children under 18, any of those events in on public transport, near schools, in cinemas that would be child-friendly. Um, so really what we want to do is take this through the Dáil and the Shannad and I'll be open to, I suppose, amendments coming from opposition the, or indeed uh, government. And this, this has happened elsewhere in other European countries. So we are, we are essentially, you know, co coming to this now, but we're playing a bit of catch up. Um, no, I think Ireland has actually led the way in relation to t tobacco and banning smoking. Um, but we still see the uh, numbers of people smoking remains high and we need to, I suppose, ensure that because what the evidence is saying, I suppose, to cut to the chase on this is that where young people are vaping, they are five times more likely to go on to smoke cigarettes. And we all know the harm of cigarettes and we have four and a half thousand people who die um, from, I suppose, smoking-related illnesses every single year. So this is about ensuring that we're heading for a tobacco-free uh, country here and, and reducing harm. Professor Luke Clancy, would you concur with that in, in bringing this sort of legislation forward now, that it is a step towards cutting down on smokers and protecting children? Well, it certainly welcomed the bill, and it has got a bit of impetus now perhaps with the new minister. And we're delighted to see it coming. And it does tidy up a number of things. There's the age aspect. Now, I quibble, and so did my medical colleagues quibble with the age. There is no good basis for 18. Uh, we know, as you suggest... That, Apart from the fact that you're an adult. Uh, well, you, you may be an adult. It doesn't mean that your brain is fully developed, and it's not. And we know that it doesn't fully develop in about 25. So there's no real reason for 18. And they don't need it. It's not something they well, need. Well, I suppose if you can smoke cigarettes at 18, if you can drink at 18, if you can drive at 18, if you can vote at 18, why would you put e-cigarettes at 25? Well, I would put cigarettes as well with it. But we're talking about e-cigarettes. Right. And there is no rationale for 18. Okay. It should, and we all advise that it be 21. So that's one reason. It was delayed, uh, as the minister said, Ireland has a very good reputation in tobacco control and led the world on smoke-free. 
But in this instant, about e-cigarettes, we really were behind. There's very few countries in Europe that do not have an age restriction. In fact, only the Baltics remain. So it is late and the age is important. But there were other important things and we'll in get to them. as well. We, we will get to them shortly. But I want to bring um, Dr. Garrett McGovern in here because as a GP specialising in addiction medicine, we heard from the Thornish, the Micheál Martin, saying there that vaping is the revenge of the tobacco industry in terms of getting people hooked on nicotine. What do you say to that? I think it's just sensational um, uh, words from the, from the minister because... My, my kind of view on, on vaping is this. We, we, we're, we centre an awful lot on the harms of vaping, but we're not really looking at the benefits of vaping. I mean, we know, as, as uh, Hildegard mentioned, the, the effects of smoking 4,500. We're not seeing any, any... I haven't seen any deaths. I haven't even seen any, any people with addiction coming to my clinic. I don't get calls about vaping. I think we're taking our eye off the ball. That's my own view on smoking. Our smoking figures have gone down over the last six years. They've stagnated slightly. And... You know, the bill should have, when vaping was introduced to this country, there should have been an age restriction immediately. We shouldn't have had to wait this long for an age restriction. But I think we're, we, we are in danger of taking our eye off the ball in smoking because there's still too many young people being initiated to smoking. And I, I just hope that that's in the conversation also. What do you say to what Hildegard said there, that, you know, the research shows if you start vaping at a young age, then you're you're much more likely to begin smoking. Well, this this is the whole idea of the gateway uh, phenomenon. I mean, there's no really cogent evidence of, of a gateway phenomenon. The, the, the more likely um, uh, explanation of that is common liability. People who try one thing are likely to try another. The sequential side of it isn't really there. That's not in the evidence. So, so if you experiment with e-cigarettes, you're likely then, to, you know, that you may experiment with... It's, it's very likely. I mean, the, the, the reality of it is there, there are genetic predispositions to addiction. We know that. And there are people who are more likely. I mean, it's complicated why people get addicted to, to a lot of things. But the idea that they will use one thing and then they will, you know, perfectly use another thing, just it, it, it's not supported by scientific evidence. Not supported by science. Not Luke. true. In fact, we have published in peer-reviewed journal to show that if you start is vaping, you are more likely to smoke. There is no doubt about that. The world literature is on it, and we have shown it here in this country. Uh, so that's not true. But what do you say but to that argument that if you focus on, on vaping and e-cigarettes, which are not a tobacco product, that you are, uh, uh, as, doc, as Dr. Garrett McGovern saying, taking your eye off the ball around smoking itself, that vaping is that alternative to people who may want to quit smoking um, or may not begin smoking? Well, we could discuss the cessation aspect of it, but we are talking about children, and they do not start using e-cigarettes so that they can quit smoking. They start e-cigarettes and they progress to other drugs. It doesn't matter about the theory whether it's gateway or common liability. That's not the point. The reality, which we have shown in Ireland, is that if you do start on e-cigarettes, you are more likely to smoke. And I think what... Doctor said uh, just there is music to the ear of the tobacco industry. This is the uh, wedge that is going to be used. We have found that in children, smoking was declining from 95 until 2015. And in the last time we did it in 2019, smoking went up in children for the first time. And e-cigarettes was even higher. 40% of children had tried e-cigarettes. And we found, as I said, that you were more likely to smoke and that it's on the rise. Can I ask you about that? And in particular, what we get with e-cigarettes and with vaping is 
loads of bright colours and loads of flavours. Like you can get bubblegum flavour, um, you know, uh, e-cigarettes. You can you can vape, you know, watermelon flavour. All these things. They're not being targeted at adults, are they? Well, I think they are. I mean, there's, there's, you know, we don't talk about Nicorette. Uh, that has many flavours and we don't talk about the flavours within that. I mean, flavours are an absolutely key component of people making a quit attempt from electronic cigarettes. So to say flavours are aimed at, uh, at young people, they, they, you know, there's a lot but of... But a 13, 14-year-old not be more likely to vape if, if, it, if it's flavoured, like cherry flavour well, we or we, lemon flavour, rather than tasting like well, tobacco. Can, can I make this point clear? We, we, you know, young people smoked. They smoked tobacco-flavoured cigarettes and they still continue to smoke tobacco-flavoured cigarettes. The fact of the matter is, with no age restriction, we don't know what the impact of the age restriction will be. So I think we need to sort of tread a little bit lightly. We need to absolutely make sure that people who use electronic cigarettes are people who are trying to quit smoking. We need to pull out all the stops for that. There's... Less than, there's probably only about 1% of people, or 1% to 2% of people internationally who use electronic cigarettes that wouldn't otherwise be smoking. In other words, the rest of them are using them as a smoking cessation uh, tool. Mm. And, you know, whether we like it or not, there's at least 200,000 people in this country, possibly as much as 250,000 people, the vast majority are smokers, who are getting away from a smoking habit. That's a success story. So you're saying actually the marketing is good to get regular smokers to quit and having those flavours and all of those things available it to attracts people them. attracts yeah. them. They, don't, why, they want to get thing. away, Claire. They want, to get, they want to get On away that, from tobacco. Unfortunately, the data just in shows that it doesn't matter whether there's flavouring or not as regards success in using e-cigarettes for stopping smoking. The flavours are there for children. That's and not they true. They do attract Luke, them. That's not true. And no, we have asked no. them. I'm not guessing. I'm not pretending. I'm telling you. We have data which shows that that is one of the main reasons they use e-cigarettes. Hildegard, I want to ask you about that because it's not within your legislation, despite it being recommended by the Joint Oireachtas uh, Committee on Health that you also outlaw flavours and you just have a straight tobacco flavour and, and get rid of all the fancy marketing. Yes, yeah, so there is an EU directive in relation to plain packaging around vaping uh, being worked on at EU level. So we'll be, and I know I was with Minister Donnelly as well today, and we spoke to this, and Minister Donnelly is, we're, was at one in this, um, that we will be watching that directive that, uh, at EU level. And if we feel that, that the plain packaging is not happening around vaping or around, you know, the flavours, we will be moving on that here as well. But is, uh, can so I just... Can, can second, I because there's a lot of yeah. businesses that are around shopping centres around the country mm. and all over the place that really, you know, they're open, they're there as an outlet because you can go in, you can choose mm. all the flavours under the sun and whatever colour you want and whatever, you know, way you want to vape, you can do that. Are you saying actually that it, it, we are likely to see a change in that regard? It's not in this legislation currently, but what we, I have said, and Minister Donnelly has said this today, that we will be looking at what's happening at an EU level uh, in relation to that. And if there's moves, they are looking at this. And if we if they feel that there, they're not going to do it, we will do it here nationally. And can I just say around parents, teachers, there's huge amount of concern around their own children. So even anecdotally being attracted to these uh, vapes, these e-cigarettes, these flavours, these colours, and that's parents coming to us as well as elected representatives, really concerned about um, their children using this, particularly young children. When you look at the, I suppose, the brain development and the long-term impact that vapes have, and that's what this legislation is about. It's about children and protecting children. If you're okay. a smoker and you want to get quit and use e-cigarettes, um, e that's fine. And that can be very but, successful but, you know, for in, some people. In the attempt to get to a tobacco-free society, which is what, you know, we aim to do as a country and what we saw when we saw the workplace ban put in effect and we were kind of world leader in that regard. 
Um, what about what Garrett is saying about vaping being that alternative that is not tobacco? So it's, a, it's, a, it's an alternative to smoking yeah. and it's helping smokers quit. Absolutely. And there are people that, and that does help people to quit. And I would acknowledge that. And I so think- you, Are you saying it's okay for adults, but for kids? For, for, well, for, no. for a smoker who wants to get off, to quit smoking, yeah. that e-cigarettes help them, can, can assist some people. Right, but okay. we have to acknowledge that, it, the that they are harmful. And being available to them. That for adults, like adults will make, you know, their own decisions okay, in relation so, to that. So we may not see any quick change around the branding and, and the flavours just yet. But do we know about, um, um, uh, I suppose I'm, I'm thinking to what other countries are, are doing in this regard. Um, and the Chief Medical Officer for England on vaping, Sir Chris Whitty, um, was saying it can if you smoke, vaping is much safer. Now, he thinks it's an utterly unacceptable marketing vapes towards children, but that um, cigarettes being the biggest cause of entirely preventable illnesses and that vaping does reverse that. It doesn't reverse anything. Uh, it's nicotine and mostly it's derived from tobacco and it is addictive. It's harmless, And though. it is not harmless. It is harmless. It's harmless. Nicotine on its own, nicotine replacement therapy, Luke, does not do anything to anybody. Nicotine, and I want to say one thing about the, 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 the young brains. This on the science tobacco, on nicotine the science being harmful. tobacco, nicotine is harmful, it is addictive, and it's harmful to the brains of children. Rat studies, it, Luke. And also they are more likely to begin smoking. No human studies. And uh, the idea that if we're all that all smokers are going to change to e-cigarettes and that's safer. This is a framing of this debate which initiated in UK and is wrong and our European colleagues are not going this way. I am disappointed to hear the minister say we'll copy other countries if they find it. We were leaders here and this is something we should be leading on and could lead on. All right. Garrett, I just want to ask you that as somebody who works in the area of addiction, mm. you're saying Nicotine, while addictive, is not harmful. Have you seen people with vaping Because, you know, you will see people who, who vape and vape regularly because nicotine is addictive. But you're saying that is not a harmful practice. Yeah, it doesn't seem to do anything to anybody other than being addictive. I mean, addictive is one thing. But with addiction, is there a consequence to their addiction? And I have not seen a single, and I've said this before on, on, on many programmes, uh, radio programs, including Luke was on those programs, but I have not seen a single nicotine causing illness on its own, absent of smoke. And what about the Nicot other chemicals within within? Yeah, I mean, vaping I mean, vaping is not is not harmless. I, I, we'll all accept that, right? And 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 I accept that we don't know the full harms of vaping. It is around twenty years. I mean, Public Health England they 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 come under another acronym now. Do keep a check on these things every single year, and nothing has really changed in relation to the harms. All right, that's not true. We're going to have to leave. We're going to have to leave this discussion uh, there for now. But my thanks to Hildegard, to Luke, and to Gareth. Uh, coming up after the break, media reports say we're heading for a summer scorcher. What about the link to climate change? Welcome back. I'm joined on Skype by Alan O'Reilly from Carlo Weather. And also here in studio with me is environmental journalist John Gibbons, because we want to talk about um, the bit of a heat wave we have coming our way. Um, and to come to you first, Alan, on, on it, we're heading for um, a bank holiday weekend, blue skies everywhere this week. Is the warm spell set to last? 
Yes, indeed, Claire. It looks well set last into the weekend and even into next week. Temperatures getting up to 25 or 26 degrees the next few days with lots and lots of sunshine, very few clouds around. So uh, very good weather right through the rest of this week into the bank holiday weekend and even into early next week. That northeast to easterly wind will keep it a little bit cooler on the east coast. So if you're staying in Ireland and you're heading for the east coast, you will want to bring the jumper. But generally a very, very good spell of weather. A good spell of weather. Is it unusual for this time of year? I saw you tweeting earlier about hay in May for one farmer in Tipperary that he'd said he'd never been able to pull in um, hay like it in the month of May with this dry weather. Yes, indeed. It, it is unusual to get um, a fine spell in May. I mean, we have seen it in the past. We've seen higher temperatures in May in the past. Um, high pressure, the Azores high can come up like this, but it doesn't happen too often, um, especially not in May. So it is a fine spell of weather. It's not we haven't seen before, um, but that depends on how long it lasts because we have reached absolute drought at a couple of weather stations already with um, 15 days without rain here in Carlo. So depending on how long it lasts, the drought may become an issue. All right. So um, uh, drought conditions in May, uh, John Gibbons. I mean, what do you uh, take from this weather? And in particular, I want to ask you what you think of the way it's reported on um, in the media. We're likely to see all the headlines. We already had the stories about the crumbling flakes in the 99s, people out in the beach, um, all, all those front pages splashing with, you know, beach fun and the rest of it. Do you, do you have an issue with that? Well, uh, nobody wants to be the, the, the spoil sport. And particularly in Ireland, obviously, we... we Heat waves are still a relatively rare phenomenon. Although I would point out that uh, we had uh, a heat wave, a severe heat wave in 2018, uh, including drought conditions. And we, we also had drought conditions in 2020. So what that tells us is, I mean, we've always had these once-off weather events, but they're, they're closing in and they're getting much closer together now. So that's the key issue. How we report it, uh, there was a study done in this from the uh, University of Exeter that looked at the 2019 droughts across Europe. And what they found is that when, when and this was coverage that, that specifically referenced climate change, and they found that only 1% of the reports themselves, the actual text of the reports, if you like, spun heat waves in a positive way. In other words, they recognise them as a danger to the public. But 30% of the imagery attached to those articles, both newspaper, uh, TV articles uh, and online articles, 30% of them presented a positive imagery. Things like, you know, kids jumping into the, into the sea, uh, people paddling in a pool. Yeah, so, isn't that the reality, though, as well, that people will really enjoy this good weather this weekend? Here in Ireland, absolutely. But if we go back to last summer in Europe, last summer we had the most extreme temperatures, the, most, the highest summer temperatures ever recorded in the continent of Europe in 500 years of instrumental records. That included, Claire, 20,000 excess deaths across Western Europe. And that was in a year without an El Nino event. And it's likely by the end of 2023 that we move into an El Nino phase, which in simple terms means this means more energy in the, in the atmospheric system. And the other thing I think in Ireland, I agree, uh, we tend, uh, our temperatures rarely break beyond about 33 degrees centigrade. But we saw our neighbour, Britain, last year, unexpectedly broke 40 degrees centigrade. Now, and that is covered, say, on news programmes. It would be covered across, you know, Virgin Media when we do see these, you know, crazy high temperatures um, in Europe and beyond the continent, the impact that they're having, the UK heatwave, as you referenced there. That, you know, the good and the bad 
do feature yeah. in all of this. I think so. And it's not suggesting that we have to play martial music every time uh, the sun comes out. Of course not. Mm. It's about balance and it's also about context. What's often missing in our reporting, and particularly in our meteorological reporting, is the climate overlay. And particularly, Claire, if we have an event like, for example, the recent devastating Italian floods, which followed a severe drought. Now, those floods, we've already got uh, studies, uh, att climate attribution studies that are able to identify the climate signal in those flooding. So we need to get, make sure our meteorological reporting, which should, of course, is connected to our news services, that it is reporting almost, maybe not in, 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 in real time, but certainly in near time, to, to take a particular weather event and say, right, has that weather event been made more intense, more severe or not? by the underlying climate signal. And what we're finding time and time again is that the, it, we basically have weather on steroids. That's maybe the best way of describing what climate change does to our weather systems. Um, Alan, to bring you in on that as somebody who's, you know, a big fan of monitoring the weather and uh, it's, it's really what you love to do, it's your passion. How much more is, is sort of climate change playing into your forecasting and the trends that you're looking at? Yeah, well, absolutely. I mean, we expect to see more droughts. We accept, expect to see more severe flooding. Um, but we have to be careful attributing single weather events to, to climate change. And it's more the trends because you lose the people when you try and, you know, pick out an individual stat from a weather event because, for example, 28.4 degrees is the record May temperature set in 1997. We may not get near that, but that doesn't mean what we're not seeing, we're not seeing the impacts of climate change. So it's about trying to get the messaging correct. I mean, we have a lot of information, we have a lot of weather forecasting. We are going to see more severe events. I think the part that's missing really is the adaption. I mean, we don't really see, we don't have a flood warning system still. We don't seem to be building reservoirs to capture that rain when we get it. So, you know, obviously we have to do our bit and we have to make changes to all of our lifestyles, but we also have to adapt to what's happening in the weather. And I think that's the biggest part that's missing in Ireland. Okay. Uh, would you agree with that, John? I, I would have to take issue with one point. Uh, and I think that is that the science of climate attribution has come on in leaps and bounds over the last five to 10 years. What that means is we have climate attribution services, teams of scientists who are able, as I said, in almost real time to apply climate attribution filter to specific weather events. Now, and I'll means. tell you why, yeah, what that means is, for example, the 2003 um, heat wave in Europe, uh, 70,000 excess deaths. That was a huge uh, event. Now, as a result of that, it was necessary, but it was probably two or three years before we were able to establish the climate link on that particular uh, weather event. What's happened in the meanwhile, in, in the last decade in particular, is that the science of what's called climate attribution, this is basically where they're able to model Mo a, specific, a specific, so let's take, I mentioned the Italian weather event. The climate attribution uh, scientists are able to look at a specific event like that and identify whether or not there's a climate signal involved. Now, they have no, no issue in saying that there isn't if they're unable to okay. identify one. But in many cases, and this is where I, I think Alan may be a little bit behind the, the, the ball on this, climate attribution is now an active service. And you can find out if you're inclined to look within, in some cases, a fortnight or even less, whether or not a specific weather event has a climate signal attached to it. Okay, Alan, would you be aware of that? And is that something that um, you think is sort of relevant to your work now? Yes, absolutely. And as I say, certain, you know, trends and weather events like the extreme rainfall, 90 millimetres of rain in an hour, you know, there's no 
no doubt that climate change impacts that. What I'm saying is you need to be careful about taking a dry spell like we have in May and attributing that or the warm temperatures that we have, 24.9 degrees in Shannon, and saying it's climate change because then somebody will produce a stat to say it was 28.4 degrees in 1997. So you, you just have to be right. careful because I, I'm always saying you have to bring the people with you. And if, you, if you're explaining and losing, it's very hard to bring the people with okay. you. Bring the people with you on this one, John. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry that I think we're, we really are at cross purposes here. The science of climate attribution isn't uh, some kind of popularity contest. This is hard mm. science. So if, science... We, if we talk about that temperature, mm. say, you know, 24.9 mm. or something in Shannon, can we attribute that to climate change? No, a, a specific incident, a specific moment, absolutely not. And, and Alan is right. There's huge variability in the climate system. We know that. However... What science has been super good at in the last decade is, is, sorting, is, out, that information is sorting together. out the signal from the noise and being able to sift through all that meteorological noise and get to the underlying climate signal. Now, if the signal isn't okay. there, they don't report it. OK, all right. Well, we'll there we'll have to leave it for now. Um, my thanks to you. Enjoy the weekend, regardless uh, of the weather anyway. But that is it from us. Our programme is available as a podcast on all major platforms. You can also now find us on Instagram and on TikTok. That's tonight, VMTV. But from all the late team here, good night. Take care.